WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Hey out there and welcome to this week's episode of Out There. My name is Raymond Wiley. My name is Joe McFall. Thanks for listening. Absolutely. So I think uh, I think they picked up a little bit of our coughing and hacking during the uh, during the intro. You so think so? Yeah, I, I think maybe you're right. There was a little bleed over there. No, we're, we're <laughs> kidding, dude. We're, we're, we're giving our producer a hard time, but... <laughs> But he's cool. He's cool. Thanks, thanks to Stephen yeah. for yeah. Thanks Stephen for producing Steven. the show. Uh, anyway, so on to uh, on to more important matters like, or more relevant matters. More relevant we matters. We, we we don't mean to insult. <laughs> right. Um, Not that you're irrelevant, Stephen. You're very relevant. He's he's giving us the <laughs> thumbs up. So I think everything's okay. So um, we got an interesting show for you guys today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Report from Iron Mountain. So some interesting. Secret documents. I just want to say one thing, Raymond. Oh, what you got? Peace has its problems. Oh, yeah. And if you read this document, <laughs> you'll know that it's just too problematic to even worry about. Yeah. For, <laughs> forget about peace. It's not going to happen. What is it good for? <laughs> peace. Ab- huh. What is it good for? Absolutely, Absolutely nothing. nothing. Yeah. So anyway, before we get on to our topic for today, we you know we got our usual announcements. If uh, you ever want to send us an email with some feedback about the show, we'll be happy to respond to you. Um, well, we'll be responding to some people in the next couple of weeks. If you, so, if you've already sent us stuff, we'll get back to you. But if you want to send us stuff about this show or anything coming up in the future, uh, send us an email at outthereradio@gmail.com. If you have sent us something, thanks so much for your feedback. We do read every single email, even if, we, even if it takes us a little while to respond. Exactly. Exactly. Some are some are stranger than others, we, and we we definitely appreciate the feedback. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So yeah, give us feedback. But you know, if you want, I mean, if you like the show, if you've been listening for the past, well, I guess this is our twelfth episode now. If, yeah. If you've yeah. kind of gotten into out there and you you want to help us out with anything, um, we're going to be doing some extra promotions coming up in the uh, upcoming months, and um, we could really use your help. So if you want to help us. Uh, with doing internet promotions or Web, you know, if website you know any, stuff. Yeah, if you know anybody that um, is good with web stuff and they're into this kind of stuff and they might want to help us out, you know, we're you know, we're a non commercial station. We don't get paid for this, but right. but a little promo uh, promo help would be great at this point. And you know, I mean we're gonna get like T shirts and some C, like some uh, season one CDs done by May and you know you'd certainly get some of those and good news too. Uh, we had said on previous episodes that we we're gonna change our name. No way. Forget about it. Right. We We're got not. all this feedback saying no, don't change the name. We yeah. like the name. You know, we had our we had our concerns, but you know, we don't I mean, we we'll, we can go ahead and talk a little bit about this. You know, yeah, we yeah. don't we don't know um you know, exactly what the future is going to hold for the show after May and we may be trying to get on other networks and Who when knows? that time comes, we we may change the name of the show just because I don't know. Out there's kind of common name, I guess. Well, it right down to it's it. a good name. It though. is a good it's such name. Such a good name. So, but you know what they say, you know, if you've got a good idea, you're not the 
you're, you're not, not the, the first, first to have right. it. So. Well, but anyway, um, do we have anything else? Uh, well, if you feel like, if you're listening to the show live, um, go ahead and, and pull up your AOL Instant Messenger. We're on it. Uh, our screen name's Out There Radio. Send us a message. Um, or if you're listening, listening not live, see if we're on. Add right. us to your buddy list. So enough business. For yeah, today. we've got we've got more interesting things to talk about. So peace. Yeah, peace and war and uh, strange, strange reports. Right. So this today we're going to talk about a single, uh, I guess, literary work for lack a document. Of, a document. That's a good yeah. way to put it. Yeah. We're going to talk about one single document today, and that is what is called the report from Iron Mountain. Um. Joe, would you like to start off by giving us a little bit of background about where the document came from and kind of the story behind it getting out to the public, I guess? Yeah, and the full title, let me because this sort of sheds light on what the document's about. The full title is the Special Study Group's Report from Iron Mountain on the Possibility and Desirability of Peace. And it's ostensibly a, a document that was commissioned by the United States government, maybe the Department of Defense, um, in the early 60s, and it came to the attention of uh, a man named Leonard Lewin uh, through a, a man who he doesn't name in the foreword. Leonard, Leonard Lewin writes a foreword to this document. Right, and he had been he had been a writer in and around Washington, is that correct? I before, think so, yeah, yeah. Before this all happened, and he had you know been a writer of like political satire or and different things like that before, and supposedly he was approached by this... Um, John Doe. John Doe, a teacher or a professor at a major Midwestern university or so, right. so Lewin says. Yeah, and over lunch, John Doe tells Lewin that he had been contacted by someone who was part of this group that had been commissioned by the government to investigate, um, well, a contingency plan in case peace broke out. <laughs> right. It's, uh, like, it's all well, ab- right. It's all about the prospects for long-term peace. And when, and when we talk about long-term peace, I mean... You know, there, I mean, we're not talking about, like, the end of the Vietnam War. I mean, this is a Vietnam-era, right. Cold War-era yeah. document. We're not talking about an end of the Vietnam War. We're not even talking about an end of the Cold War. When they say peace in this document, they're talking about a lasting peace right. with major disarmament. Total disarmament. Total disarmament. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Total yeah. disarmament of all major world powers. Right. And so the story goes that, uh, John, that John Doe had been given this document by someone who sat on the committee. Now... John Doe told Leonard Lewin, and and he was told by this unnamed person who sat on the committee, that the objective of this committee was to, de- to quote, to determine accurately and realistically the nature of the problems that would confront the U.S. if and when a condition of permanent peace should arise, and to draft a program for dealing with this con- contingency. I mean, right off the bat, what's interesting about this document is that it never like specifies how that would ever happen. It's I don't know. It's very very interesting. Just in that, you know, supposedly these. I mean, well, I guess you want to tell the story about how it was how it was written. Yeah, the report from Iron Mountain. It's called the report yeah. from Iron Mountain. Let's talk about what Iron Mountain is. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. That's that's a that's a good point. So Iron Mountain is one of many deep underground bunkers. Uh, I think Iron Mountain is in it's in the northeast. I think it's in Pennsylvania, and um, it actually still exists today. It's um, it's like the most high security and most well protected archive in the world. Like it houses some of the most 
highly prized photographic archives in the world, and it's actually a privately owned um, installation. It's built out of an old iron mine, and it's um, it's uh, you know underneath the ground in western I think western Pennsylvania, and it's like a thousand acres underground. Yeah, a thousand acres. It's a, its original purpose though was a sort of nuclear bunker for the corporations that own it. Right? Well, that was the way it was built back mm-hmm. in the '50s, just because that was maybe the best way to explain something like that or make it more i guess make it more desirable for people to pay to have their documents housed yeah. there and um so it's been there all this time it's like it's, it's like 1700 employees or something like that mm-hmm. in this facility and it's still um still used to house uh, god knows what's housed down there besides yeah. you know these famous photographic archives now right? iron mountain was the uh, original meeting location for this special study group that was commissioned to produce this document. Right, and it was supposedly also the last place right, they met. Right, right. It was a group of 15 mostly academics. One of the criteria, one of the criterion, one of the criteria for um, being in the special study group was that you had to be a, an, ex, an interdisciplinary ex, expert. You had to be an expert in multiple fields of study. Most of the people were academic. There were a few that had sort of military or corporate ties. It was 15 people and they started off meeting Iron Mountain. Then over the next two and a half years, met at different places around the country, hotel rooms, summer camps, um, a mansion in West Virginia. Right. To, never, uh, But never like <laughs> this sort of like underground bunker kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason it's named it the way it is is because it kind of puts you, I mean, if you've ever heard of Iron Mountain or any of these, I mean, other underground facilities, then it's going to automatically put you in a sense of, you know, this is yeah. top secret kind it's of so stuff. It's so like Dr. Strangelovian, if I could coin a new adjective. Right. I mean, and I know that came, I mean, that's come up the last week or two, yeah, you know, yeah. but it's it's very true. And it's very it's just very strange stuff. But we can't get Iron Mountain confused with these other, like, I mean, I think there are, I think there are like large bunkers like this that are built to house, like, a thousand U.S. government officials in case of nuclear mm-hmm. attack and stuff like that, and those places actually exist too. Well, we, this is ostensibly to house corporations, corporate. Right. It's yeah, corporate um, continuity in yeah. the case of nuclear attack. Right. Basically. Right. So, you know, you see how this would be a perfect setting for a study like this. Yes. And in fact, so this group not only has connections to the government; it's commissioned by the government. But also connections to corporations, and that there's, you know, it's it's the Iron Mountain report. It's right. meeting at Iron Mountain initially, and then sort of continuing over different places over the next few years, right. and ending up at, back at Iron Mountain to finish the, this report. Right. The report took two years to um, mm-hmm. to complete, or according to the account, anyway, it took two years to complete, and um, came to some. I guess what most laymen would call startling conclusions. Yeah, let's get into that, Raymond, because I would call it outrageous conclusions. Um, I'm gonna, we're probably we're going to read a lot of quotes from this from this document and from the forward itself because nothing really says it better than the document. I just want to read um, the, sort of the gist of what it is that this report concludes. One. Lasting peace, while not theoretically impossible, is probably unattainable. One one more time. Lasting peace, while not theoretically impossible, is probably unattainable. Even if it could be achieved, it would almost certainly not be in the best interest of a stable society to achieve it. That's, that's the gist of the Iron Mountain Report. That even if we can have peace, it's not in our best interest. War, continued war, is in our best interest. So, do you think that's such an um, outrageous claim? 
<laughs> are so, you asking me I'm personally? I'm asking you personally, yeah. The, what, well, I mean, whose who's best interest are we talking about? Right. That, and I think that's what it comes down yeah. to. Because, I mean, if you're talking about the best interest of, say, oh, I don't know, the citizenry you're sworn to protect, mm-hmm. then a war isn't necessarily the best thing. So, Well, what's, what's so great about war? Well, tell us, Joe, what, <laughs> what does the report say is so great about war? They, they, well, they come up with sev- several conclusions. Uh, first of all, and we're, we're going to talk about this in a few different ways. One, you know, what, what, what are the functions of war, according to this document? Two, what would we do without war? In other words, what, what are the criteria for, um, for s- systems that would replace the, the functions that war serves? And three, what are, the, what are the kinds of models that might fit those criteria for replacing the functions that war serves? So first of all, let's talk about the functions of war. All right. So, um, accor- and according to this document, war serves primarily an economic function. Right, stabilizing the economy. Yes, it keeps the economy stable. It does this by, um, by basically uh, making the the government, meaning the taxpayers, because right. I mean, government money is our money, right? By making the taxpayers spend bi- billions, probably at that time millions or hundreds of millions do- of dollars on war. Right, and on a military. Yeah, and ultimately, what that what that means is that. Um, the, all that money spent is wasteful, right? Well, wasteful in, only in the sense that it doesn't really achieve anything, but rather it's productive and then it keeps this balance. Right, and it right? serves as a form of social welfare yeah. to those it employs. Right, right. Social, not only social welfare for, the, for those it employs, but also their employers. Yes. You know, in corporate yeah, big welfare. Bucks. Yeah. So it serves corporate interests and it serves the interests of workers who actually get paid in, the, in a war economy. So war clearly serves this economic function and has so for thousands of years, right? It, it provides economic stability. Right. By the way, we should point out that this is a short document. That when we, when we read these quotes, it's basically like the final word on the subject for the document. Like there's not a bunch of intervening evidence that we could point to. Right. You know, it's just, it's just put out there. It's just like, you know, this is the way it is. Right. This is what the special study group says, yeah. basically. Well, what do you think about this, this idea that war serves as economic function? Well, I know that it's a very common argument that um, the Second World War was what brought the United States out of the Great Depression. Right. So that's, uh, and, and, that that, the, and that the Cold War was part of our continuing economic success during the 50s and 60s. Right. The uh, inflated... Uh, amount of money going into arms, uh, manufacturing, military equipment, mm-hmm. uh, space equipment, and NASA um, certainly put a lot of people in work yeah. and helped strengthen our economy. Or at least that's been the argument. I mean, that's the common argument yeah. that you hear. In anyway. fact, some people say that, well, you, all, you often hear this praise for Ronald Reagan that he ended the Cold War by keeping up Cold War spending during the 80s, thereby... Uh, making the Soviets keep up with us, and they couldn't really hold that up financially, and that's why the Soviet Union crumbled. Which is completely asinine to uh, <laughs> suggest, because the Soviets had basically already invaded Afghanistan by the time. I mean, you know, by the time Reagan really got into office, 
he they I mean that was their mistake, not mm-hmm. you know having to build extra. Missiles. So they overextended themselves, right? Yeah, but that that well, are, that's part of the point right. is that they did that because right. the United States. But it wasn't like us. Ronald Reagan sitting on the other side of the Afghan border, like, hey, yeah, come on over, right? <laughs> I'm going to end the Cold War. Yeah, like <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. I mean, okay, Reagan said so. Right. Let's do it. Okay, so. <laughs> We're going to alienate some Reagan fans I don't here. Care. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, so, okay, economic functions of war. All right. All right, there's also political functions of war. Let, let me read this quote from, the, from, from this. This is part of the conclusions of, this, of the, um, the report. The report. The permanent possibility of war is the foundation for stable government, it supplies the basis for general acceptance of political authority. It has enabled societies to maintain necessary class distinctions, and it has ensured the subordination of the citizen to the state by virtue of the residual war powers inherent in the concept of nationhood. Yeah. So war is a, keeps the government stable by keeping the citizens in control, basically. Right. The protection that the military provides, due, according to this argument, yeah. is what makes people see governments as legitimate. Right. Without it, without standing armies and the government really has no um, no backing for its claim on authority. Right. Basically. Which, uh, you know, what about like the Netherlands? <laughs> I don't know. Their government works. You know, Sweden. <laughs> their government works. The Netherlands. They, are just they a don't bunch have of, an army. <laughs> bunch of weed heads. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they are? Why don't you go to Amsterdam, Raymond, and oh, you're the whatever. one. Hey, wait a minute. You're the okay, one. Okay, so the next, <laughs> the next. Well, do we have anything more to say about that? That that war, a, a permanent, the permanent possibility of war is a foundation for stable government. According to this report, and it is a logical argument in a lot of ways. It seems to make sense. The modern nation state. If you read, um, well, one good book you could read on this is uh, Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Um, mm-hmm. He talks about this that. The rise of the modern nation-state with a national identity serving natural interest is a byproduct of the rising expense of wars in the late Renaissance and early modern period. Can we? So. Can I just say something for a second, Raymond? Yeah, go for it. This is totally outrageous. Yeah. This document, the you know, the fact that our government would you know spends money to research this and to sort of come up with these peace contingencies, it's just outrageous to me. It's shocking. It's a waste of taxpayers' dollars, my friend. Well, maybe war is too. <gasps> oh man, <laughs> shouldn't we have left that unsaid or no, something? No, oh, no, a real journalist would never say is this, <laughs> what you just is said. Our, is, is this our real show journalism? journalism? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> so, um, moving on. Okay, so social functions of war. So yeah, so war has a sociological function. Check this out. This is from this is from the document too. The war system has provided the machinery through which the motivational forces governing human behavior have been translated into binding social allegiance. It has thus ensured the degree of social cohesion necessary to the viability of nations. No other institution or groups of institutions in modern societies has successfully served these functions. War gives us social cohesion. Without war, our, our nation state would fall apart. Okay. Are they talking about the, like blind patriotism that maybe was going on during the 50s and during the Cold War, that kind of stuff. Does, I mean, I'm is just, that required for social cohesion? I mean, has that been 
required for social well, cohesion what else? in a post nine eleven setting? Maybe, maybe. but well, well maybe a, a good question is right What kind? What else could could bring our country together like war? Well, they're going to talk about that in a few minutes. They're going to maybe give some sort of alternative, right. but really, doesn't it seem like war is the best way to bring our country together? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. You're probably right. But not according to this document. According to this document, war serves this sociological function. Without without a constant state of war, we can't have social cohesion. Okay. We need it. We so need what, war. So what else we got? Cultural functions of war? Ecological oh, functions. okay. Yeah. War has been the principal evolutionary device for maintaining a satisfactory ecological balance between gross human population and supplies available for its survival. I got one word for you on that one. Yeah. Disease. But war. That's the, that's the culprit there, not war. No, no, okay. Let's talk about war as opposed to disease for controlling population. Okay. How many people were killed in the Black Plague? Like in the, what was that? Like a third of Europe. A third of Europe, right? How many people were, were killed in all of World War, all of World War I, for instance? Um, uh, a lot. Around about 20 million, 25 million, yeah. I guess. How many people were killed in, in an instant in Hiroshima? About 80,000. Right. So as our war technology advances, it sort of outpaces the benefit of disease oh, on our it's, species. It's, it's, more, um, it's more efficient. <laughs> war is much more efficient for controlling our ecological environment in terms of uh, population size and our relationship to resources. So war is a good way to keep down uh, human population. Okay. Is that the only ecological? Function? Well, he, the the document also goes into uh, the fact that the human species is the only species that we know of that that um, that goes to war. Goes to war. Ants. Oh, I guess ants, ants do too. To yeah. yeah. Why do ants go to war to compete for resources? Yep. Same reason as humans do, I guess. And so that's that's one of the arguments made in this document, right? That that it, say you have some excess population. Go to war, right? You got too many people in your country? Go to war. Right. So, you know, you, you don't have enough resources? Go, Go to, to war. war. Yeah. Say you're running out of oil? Go, Go to, to war. war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this ecological um, benefit to go to war. Yeah. There's also a, you wouldn't know this, Raymond. <laughs> But there's a cultural and scientific benefit of war. What's that, Joe? Culturally, well, basically this document, and this is one of the most, I mean, this to me is just beyond the pale. Okay. That basically it says that without war, art is boring. Art is boring. Art is boring without a constant state of war to back up creativity. What about love? No, war. <laughs> <laughs> no, just war. Just war. Art is love is boring. Beauty, boring. <laughs> uh, okay. Yawn. It's all about war, man. Man, these guys were cooped up in Iron Mountain too long. I guess so. I guess so. And that's just the cultural side of things. Scientifically, uh, war allows for great technological advancement, and not just in uh, like the machineries of death associated with war. I mean that's all well and good that we can build uh, bombs that you know that kill two hundred megatons and stuff right. like that. Yeah, that kill millions of people in a heartbeat. 
that's fine. But like this, this document goes into some of the medical benefits of war, the, like med- the the benefits that war gives to medical technologies. You got a quote on this one? Yeah, actually, let me find it first. Okay, so I can. I oh, can, here, here okay, we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Um, the most direct relationship. This is between war and technology. Can be found in medical technology. For example, a giant walking machine. An amplifier of body motions invented for military use in difficult ter- terrain is now making it possible for many previously confined we- wheelchairs to walk. Oh, that's good. The Vietnam War alone, it says, has led to spectacular improvements in amputation procedures, blood handling techniques, and surgical logistics. It has stimulated new, large-scale research on malaria and other tropical parasite diseases. It is hard to estimate how long this work would otherwise have been delayed despite its enormous non-military importance to nearly half the world's population. So we get all of these medical technologies from an ongoing state of war. Wow, I would have never thought of that. Yeah, Raymond, if you ever needed to get something amputated, we might not have the technology to do it safely if it weren't for the Vietnam War. And all of those boys, yeah. these arms and legs we had. All to of our off. boys. That's, <laughs> that's your, you, you love that, don't you? Chad? What, the phrase, our you, boys? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, before we go on to replacements of the war system, I want to like. Well, we're not done with functions of war. There's a few oh. like random ones they talk about. Okay. Then we can talk about relations. Okay, but let's, let's talk about technology for a minute because yeah. this. We've read a lot of. We talked about a lot of outlandish stuff in this episode, <laughs> out of this document. But I this was, is I mean, this is one that makes the most sense. Um, war a war system causes a permanent um, tax subsidy to high technology industries to develop newer and more advanced weapons. Yeah, those newer and advanced weapons technologies bleed down into the private sector. So it's sort of like a Reaganomics trickle down technology. That, I was about to say that. You yeah. know, it's it's like uh, it's like trickle down. Economic theory, except it actually works with technology and doesn't work with economics. What? God, this has turned into a total Reagan bashing <laughs> this show. I mean, well, I mean, given the nature of the subject, it's hard not to. <laughs> right, Come on, man. So, let's talk about some of the other miscellaneous yeah, functions. Miscellaneous of war. functions of war. One, war is a general social release. War provides a periodic necessary readjustment of standards of social behavior, the moral climate, and for the dissipation of general boredom, one of the most consistently undervalued and unrecognized social phenomena. So war cures boredom. Right. You, I mean, if it weren't for war curing boredom, people might go out and, like, kill people in yeah, the streets. I know. I know. If it weren't for war curing boredom, people might commit murder. Right. <laughs> if it weren't for murder... Yeah. People might go out and commit murder. This is let, genius. Let me this read the is next genius. One. War, this is my favorite. Well, to one of my favorites. War as a generational stabilizer. This psychological function, served by other behavior patterns in, another, in other animals, enables a physically deteriorating older generation to maintain its control of the younger, destroying it if necessary. The old people don't like the young people. Send them to war. Hey, to to quote Phil Oaks, it's always the old who lead us into war. And yeah. It's always the young to fall. That's so true. It's true, man. That's true. And that's actually a beneficial function of war, that we get rid of some young people. Right. There's I mean, too many young people running around, Raymond. That's true, Send man. Send them to war. It's true, man. We gotta Send them keep, to war. We got to keep the old in control. Because, yeah. I mean, obviously... They know everything. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they have got godlike intelligence because <laughs> yeah. they're like a decade older than we are. Yeah, yeah. 
So that's a good one. Also, the, war as an ideological clarifier. Basically, there cannot be, to put it as simply as possible, more than two sides to a question because there cannot be more than two sides to a war. You're either with us or you're against us, Raymond. It's the dialectic logic. Yeah, there has to be two sides, and that is exemplified in war. So we have to keep keep up a war. Got to keep constant war. I got gotcha. you. Constant gotcha. state of war. And so, also, wait, one more. Uh, war is the basis for international understanding. Two societies can't understand each other unless they're at war with each other. Or unless they have some relative idea of, I'm tougher than you, yeah. you're tougher than me. To understand another culture, go to war. Because obviously we have so much more understanding of Vietnam now that... Right. right. <laughs> we killed like two million people there. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, we're... We're, we're, it's Ooh, about we're, time for a break. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, we've already talked about the functions of war. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, what might substitute for war in an, in an environment of ongoing peace. Right. God right. forbid that ever happened. Right. So the Iron Mountain Boys, they had to think long and hard about this. Yeah. yeah. And they've, they've come up with some good stuff for us. So, so stay tuned. There's interesting revelations coming up in the second half of this show. You're listening to Out There. We'll be right back. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Out There. My name's Joe McFall. And I'm still Raymond Wiley, just like before. So Anything uh, different, though? You're Raymond Wiley, but... Uh, you know, uh... uh more heavily influenced by the love of war, I guess. Now <laughs> you've got your what's the what's the what's the word for that? Uh, not belligerence, but like bellicosity or something. Oh, oh, yeah, something I mean, like sort of, that. Yeah, I, more I, or you're, less. you're the one that's got the master's degree. You should know this. Yeah, and I was I did some Latin stuff too, so like I should know that bellicosity. I'm <laughs> full of bellicosity yeah, today, Raymond. Right. I've got a, my war on. Just like the Iron Mountain Boys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> reading this book all day has made me want to go. Um, Shoot somebody. Well, go to war. Right. Steal some resources from another country or yeah, something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, w- wait, before we go into this, though, we've got to tell the story about finding this book in the library. Like, I had... Yeah, I you had, found it. Right, I had heard mentions of this book before and... Um, in hushed tones. In hushed tones yeah. in a book called Rule by Secrecy by Jim Mars, which is pretty good. You know, he talked about it, like, for a page or two in his book. And so I went looking for it a couple of years ago in the library, and it's like... Not even marked. Like, there's nothing on the spine. There's nothing on the cover. Let you me, wouldn't even know what it is. Like, it's it's the original edition of it that came out from Dial Press in 1967. Let and, me just read the title again for those okay. who might just be tuning in. We're talking about a book called The Report from Iron Mountain on the Possibility and Desirability of Peace. Um, it was commissioned by the U.S. government, uh, a group called Special Study Group. There is an introductory material written by Leonard C. Lewin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was published in 1967 by, by, by the Dial Press. And, and, you know, before we go on into our next point, um, we uh, had one of our listeners, Sarah, send us an instant message over the break about um, one of the other great technological functions of war, like things that get created as part of war, like mustard gas and chemical agents. Yeah. They find applications in the civilian sector afterwards, like DDT. That's a good way to... And you've seen how much DDT has helped yeah. the United States. I mean, our fruit is so fresh, all the <laughs> bugs are dead, <laughs> and so are some of us now. Yeah, and there's some maybe deformed babies running around out right. there from DDT. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, whatever. The ends justify the means, right? That's what yeah. these guys say. Yeah. So anyway, in fact, that might that that is actually a good point in in what we're about to talk about, which is you know what if what happens if we do have everlasting peace? What happens when we get rid of war? What's going to substitute for those functions of war that we talked about before the break? Well, let's talk about this. Yeah, things. let's talk about talk about that. Um, so peace suddenly breaks out. Poof. Yeah. So All nuclear no arms, war. conventional weapons, standing armies suddenly gone. What the hell are we going to do? What happens? Yeah. How are we going to function without war? What are we going to do with that fourth of our tax budget? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What are we going to do? Start funding social welfare programs? Start fu- funding totally sh- education? Sh- don't, don't, don't give it away. Because the thing is, is that war, as we said, one of the economic functions is that is all this unnecessary, wasteful spending on something that doesn't really benefit the people. So, but I mean, it serves a function of balancing out our economy and keeping us in a perpetual state of um, fear. Well, that's that's maybe part of one of the sociological functions <laughs> that we'll have to find a replacement for, okay. at, according to this document. Economically, though, um, let me just read. So these are sort of criteria for you know what, what, what are the criteria for replacing the the economic functions of war. This document, um, the Iron Mountain Report, says an acceptable economic surrogate for the war system will require the expenditure of resources for completely non-productive purposes at a level level comparable to that of the military expenditures otherwise demanded by the size and complexity of each society. So such a substitute system of apparent waste must be of a nature that will permit permit it to retain remain independent of the normal supply-demand economy. It must be subject to arbitrary political control. So what kind of model... Are they talking about here? Well, they come up with some models. So, Raymond, what are some economic substitutes, or what are some models that might give economic substitutes for war? Let's see. Um, some of the ones they mention are a comprehensive social welfare program directed towards maximum improvement of general conditions of human life. Who wants that? God. When you can have war. Right. A, a giant open-ended space research program aimed at unreachable targets. Mm-hmm. A permanent ritualized, ultra-elaborate disarmament inspection system and variants of such a system. This is written in the mid-1960s. I'm going to repeat that. Yeah, yeah. So they're, so they're talking about this is, these are things that could substitute for the economic functions of war, right? Right. As far, um, as, far as a political um, substitutes, like for, uh, something that can substitute for political functions of war... Um, the, the document says a viable political substitute for war must posit a generalized external menace to each society of a nature and degree sufficient to require the organization and acceptance of political authority. Remember that one of the political functions of war is to bring our country together. And so by war does this by creating an external threat. Without war, you have to invent an external threat. Right. You need something to be on the other end of the dialectic. Right. You need some invisible threat that may or may not exist that's constant, that keeps your people in a constant state of fear and unity. Right, right. That's social function. And, well, a political or, excuse function. Excuse me, political function. And some uh, possible replacement models that the Iron Mountain Boys suggest for, um, for war or the war system in a political sense are an omnipresent, virtually omnipotent international police force, <laughs> an established and recognized extraterrestrial menace, mm-hmm. massive global environmental pollution, and fictitious alternative enemies such as terrorists. Right. The such as terrorist part is not a direct <laughs> quote right. uh, from our... <laughs> but you could just as easily read communists. Right. Right. So that, that, those are some of the political models that 
or models that uh, could substitute for the political functions of war, right? Those are things that could keep us in a state of fear and unity, political unity as, as a nation. Um, one, so the, so the sociological functions of war, let me read this part. It says, first, in the permanent absence of war, new institutions must be developed that will effectively control the socially destructive segments of societies. So that first, we have to have some sort of control that war would usually provide if we're in a permanent state of peace. Right? Second, for purposes of adapting the physical and psychological dynamics of human behavior to the needs of social organization, a credible substitute for war must generate an omnipresent and readily understood fear of personal destruction. This fear must be of a nature and degree sufficient to ensure adherence to societal values to the full extent that they are acknowledged to transcend the value of individual human life. So here's what they came up with for like models that yeah. might replace those sociological functions. Yes, um, and they had to break this sociological replacements up into two functions, the control function and the motivational function. The control function of the sociological replacement of war programs generally derived from the Peace Corps model, a modern sophisticated form of slavery. That's so the other slavery one. is a good way to control the population if you're in a permanent state of peace. Right. Wage slavery, for example. Might Wage slavery, good, yeah. Would be a good way to yeah. do it. Yeah, or just slavery slavery. Yeah, just... Hey, right. man, why not? Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be too much different from, say, working in a sweatshop in a third world country right. for an American corporation right. or anything. Sure, So, sure. I mean... Okay, motivational function. Intensified environmental pollution. New religions or other mythologies. Socially oriented blood games. And combinations of these forms. <laughs> socially oriented blood games? Yeah, dude, like football. <laughs> yeah, sports. NASCAR. Sports. Yeah. Got it, got it. So that's a good way, a good substitute for war is to, instead of sending your boys to fight, you know, some evil terrorists or some weird uh, aliens. And you know, it's weird, if you go back to modern, go back to uh, like ancient history, you know, a lot like during the Pax Romana or whatever, the time when the Roman Empire had basic peace throughout its region or throughout the Mediterranean, these things seem to all pop up. Ah, that's when gladiator games started, like right. kind of got yeah. popular. That's interesting. Um, as far as the ecological functions of war, a substitute for war and its function as a uniquely human system of population control must ensure the survival, if not necessarily the improvement of the species in terms of its relation to environmental supply. So you have to have some way to kill people if you don't have war to keep the population down. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Let's see. Uh, well, the only thing they suggest is a comprehensive program of applied eugenics. So there you go. <laughs> well, there you go. So <laughs> eugenics. I is think the we, we should explain that to some of our listeners who may not have heard the term eugenics before. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to come up on out there in subsequent episodes, uh, um, especially when we get to the occult Nazis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so eugenics is this 19th century idea that grew out of Darwinism that you can in fact breed a better race of human beings through selective reproduction and. Uh, usually forced sterilization, yeah. which um, mm -hmm. actually was performed in this country on mental patients yeah. throughout the late and, and not only mental mental patients, but also just some people who were living in poverty. Right. Minorities. Right. This happened throughout the late 19th and early yeah. 20th centuries. That's a whole other show. Right. That's Yeah, that's a whole other show in and of itself, but... Um, you can see how you can reduce the population like that. I mean, that's yeah. what they're. That's what all those ideas are aimed at. Well, if you don't have war, what are you going to do? Right, not breed. Mm -hmm. That's what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as, so, that's the what is that the, the ecological? Yeah, yeah, ecological yeah. model. Ecological model. Um, as far as replacing the cultural ben benefits of war, they don't really offer uh, a replacement. They say no replacement institution offered. So basically, 
what this what this uh, document tells us is that without war, art is boring, and, and there's no replacement. There's no replacement. Love and beauty, just yeah, pale in comparison. Yawn. Mona Lisa. Boring. Ger- Guernica. Guernica every time. Boring. Oh yeah, Guern- <laughs> Guernica definitely. It's war, you know, yeah. based on war. And as far as the scientific uh, models, space research, social warf- welf- welfare, and or eugenics programs are good substitutions for war. So there you have it. Um, sub- if we enter a state of permanent peace, then um, we we should become a slave state that practices eugenics and has a constant. Uh, fictitious enemy that keeps us in a state of fear probably aliens and political unity Mm -hmm. and and under the authority of the government right and let's not forget that sophisticated modern form of slavery yeah yeah so wow there there you go makes peace sound pretty bad doesn't it raymond i don't know if i can keep it up anymore oh i know man i've I've been having a hard time the last 10 or 15 minutes listen uh this is i want i want to tell a listener something what, should we let Mr. Um, Lewin tell them from his 1972? Article? Oh, you want to read what Lewin says? L- Leonard Lewin, who is the the wrote the foreword and got this book published, has this to say about the book. That's as much background as I have room for before destroying whatever residuum of suspense may still persist about the book's authorship. I wrote the report. Leonard Lewin wrote the report. All of it. All of it. How it came about and who was privy to the plot, I'll have to discuss elsewhere. But why a hoax? What I intended was simply to pose the issues of war and peace in a provocative way. To deal with the essential absurdity of the fact that the war system, however much deplored, is nevertheless accepted as part of the necessary order of things. To caricature the bankruptcy, the bankruptcy of the think tank mentality by pursuing its style of scientific thinking to its logical ends. To its logical ends. And perhaps with luck to extend the scope of public discussion of peace planning beyond its usual stodgy limits. So remember how we said that Leonard Lewin had edited a book of political satire? Well, in fact... He edited two because that's what this is. This this document is political satire. Right. And what is most interesting about it is that it's so believable the first time you yeah. read it. The first time I got in, like, I've been studying this document for about two years now. And mm-hmm. I've been, you know, I mean, I, let me rephrase that. I read this document a couple of years ago and maybe read it once more since then. And... I never knew it was a hoax until we started doing research for this show. Yeah. Because, and I never thought this is probably a hoax. It all seems so like what yeah. a study like this would say. Right. And the thing is, and you know, good satire, Raymond, is something that's almost indistinguishable from what you would expect reality to look like. Exactly. And that's what this is. Because to me, it doesn't matter that it's a hoax. Right. The fact is that it's kind of true. Yeah. I, it's kind of it's true that the people... People, the elite, the power elite, probably actually take this these ideas seriously. The military-industrial complex, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What is it that, I guess it was, we've talked about this in the show before, but in, in Eisenhower's last speech as, a, a, you know, as, going, as president um, in January of 1960, as he was handing the torch over to Kennedy, one of the last things he said was that we should watch out for the military-industrial complex taking over our country. And... It seems like document the the gist of this document is a major reason why because this is the pattern of thinking of uh, the military industrial complex corporations that 
well, de facto own our country, more or less, and run things. The war benefits those in charge. Right, and the fact that these ideas are widespread amongst the the that com- the military industrial complex and the power elite can be illustrated in the fact that when this document originally came out, when this hoax originally came out, when people were in the State Department were asked about it, they didn't know what to say at first because it sounded so much like something that really could have been written yeah. by a think tank. Not not only that, but um, a few magazines. Let's see if I can find a quote about this. Uh, the editors of Transaction Magazine, which ran an extensive roundup of opinion of the book, noted that government officials as a class were those most likely to accept it as the real thing. Yes, I read that and I was like, that is exactly why this document is interesting. Because it's not real, but it is. Right, exactly. <laughs> it is real. You know, people do have these beliefs. The people in charge, the wrong people have these beliefs. Right, exactly. And... And it just shows you how far out of touch people must be yeah. to to think this way. And, and but you know what I love about about this document is that he slips in all of these little uh, you know like uh, what could we replace war with? What's the first thing he says? An, an open system of of welfare that could uh, you know increase the standard of living for all mankind. Think about it. How much do we pay to the uh, military each year? Four hundred billion dollars now, three hundred and fifty billion dollars. If you if you took three hundred and fifty billion dollars a year and pumped it into social welfare programs and into increasing the quality of life in this country, then you know, I mean, that's like a really good thing. Right. And that and that's kind of what he's trying to say in a roundabout way. Now, what's interesting about this is like he even makes the comment in the book that, or you know, the uh, the the Iron Mountain Boys make the comment right. in the book that. Uh, this extensive social welfare program would not be enough. And this is this drives Lewin's point home. They say uh, something to the effect of the uh, the fact that it would only take like two, like ten years of pumping all of that military expenditure into the social welfare program to build stable and long lasting institutions that wouldn't even need to be funded after that because you'd have put so much money in them already. <laughs> so he, I mean, he he slips that in there too that you know. This doesn't even need to be a full-scale replacement of the war system. Yeah. It could just be some, you know, divert yeah. money towards the good of the citizenry for a couple of years. That's all you need to do. Yeah, yeah. So that and that's why this. But Joe, yeah, at their socialism, <laughs> their socialism, <laughs> and and we all know socialism doesn't right. work. We we all prefer fascism. Raymond. That's right. We all prefer military totalitarianism. Totalitarianism. Well, I know I do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so anyway, um. Let's see. It's not real, but people, some people p- some, some people think it's real. Yeah, the um there's there's one like ultra right wing group called I think the Liberty Lobby or something like that. They're total like neo Nazi group. Oh, like there was types a, that don't believe the Holocaust was real. Are they one of those like '90s militia groups or something? No, or? no, they they've been around since the '50s. I think oh, okay. they're I think they are one of the like original kind of like Aryan Nation kind of group. Gotcha. They have been using this document for years. Apparently, a lot of the hard right wing uh, militias in the '90s were using this as sort of their bible too, among other among other documents like the Turner Diary and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and right. stuff like that. God, we could do a whole Protocols show. Oh, God. That would yeah. be another fake document show. Yeah. So anyway, you know, what? one thing that points to how believable this document is is the fact that for a long time, um, 
Well, I guess I should tell you a little bit about, before I get into the story, I should tell you a little bit about Fletcher Prouty. Colonel Fletcher Prouty was an um, Air Force colonel that worked in the uh, Pentagon for many years. And uh, after leaving the Pentagon and leaving the military after, I think, 20 years and becoming a full colonel and working in the Pentagon in intelligence, he... Um, you know, through the whole thing, he kind of had a distaste for the CIA and their growing power. And he ended up writing a bunch of books about the rise of the CIA and different things like that and how covert operations go down and how money is acquired to further national aims and things like that. Fletcher Prouty is the model upon which the character, if you've ever seen the Oliver Stone film JFK, uh, Donald Sutherland's character X is based on Fletcher Prouty. And many of the things that he says are taken from uh, Prouty's writings. What's interesting about Prouty is, is for all his deep knowledge of the CIA, he believed the Iron Man report was real. Yeah. He, he, he looked at it and was like, this, this fits the MO completely. Yeah, but in, part of it might have been, you know, even if he knew it was written by uh, this guy Leonard Lewin, he may have had some of the same take that many of the other government officials who were approached about this book had, which right. is, it sounds real enough. Right. You know? And Lewin makes the point that though many of the things that he says in this document are kind of outrageous and outlandish and absurd, and, yeah. like he makes the point that they're, they are not nearly as absurd and just nasty as documents that really were leaked from the U.S. government during that period, like the Pentagon Papers and that's in part the reason why he came out and said that he had faked the report is yeah. because you know, March 19th, 1972, the Pentagon Papers had just come out. There's all this shakeup about you know, the American people being lied to about all of these things that we were doing in the Vietnam War and how badly the Vietnam War was going from the beginning. Mm-hmm. He wanted to put it at rest and say, you know, look, I've faked this document. You know, I'm gonna, I want to say this because the Pentagon Papers aren't faked, and I don't want there to right. be any... Right. Any, he, you know, the, he says something about that... Um, you know, even though the Iron Mountain report is political satire, the Pentagon Papers are not. The Pentagon Papers are real, right? And Ev- they and and they document real atrocities. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and when it comes down to it, they're not that different. This satire is not that different from what ended up being the real thing. Exactly. Um, okay, here's here's some more stuff that. Lewin says in that same article from the New York Times, the charade is over, whatever is left of it, but the satirical conceit of Iron Mountain, like so many others, has been overtaken by the political phenomena it attacked. I'm referring to those other documents, real ones and verifiable, that have appeared in print. The Pentagon Papers were not written by someone like me. Neither was the Defense Department's Pax Americana study. We talked about the Pax Romana earlier. Mm -hmm. Pax Americana study, how to take over Latin America. Nor was the script of Mr. Kissinger's special action group reported by Jack Anderson faked. And that was all about how to help Pakistan against India while pretending to be neutral. These sorts of things were not faked. So far as I know, no one has ever challenged the authenticity of these examples of high-level strategic thinking. I believe a disinterested reader would agree that sections of them are as outrageous morally and intellectually as any of the Iron Mountain inventions. I... I'm going to repeat that. I believe a disinterested reader would agree that sections of them are as outrageous morally and intellectually as any of the Iron Mountain inventions. No, the revelations lay rather in the style of the reasoning, the profound cynicism, the contempt for public opinion. Some of the documents read like parodies of Iron Mountain rather than the reverse. And that's why, to me, Raymond, 
it doesn't matter that this is a hoax. It doesn't and I don't even like the word hoax. It's it's satire, you know. It doesn't matter that it's not true that it wasn't written in some secret nuclear bunker by fifteen, you know, hand-picked professors. It doesn't matter because the essence of it is true, you know. Right, and I think that's what it comes down to more than anything else. It's really, really showing the public and people who might not normally get might not normally get their hands on something like this, just how the elites and the high-level planners look at things. Yeah. Like, I wonder if some of these things come up in, like, CFR meetings. Maybe. And different things Maybe. Like I that. wonder if so. George Bush has read that document. <laughs> right. Or maybe Cheney has. <laughs> right. So we'll just, uh, I guess we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. The, Go go check the book out, and it's definitely worth a read. Even right. reading it as satire, I was once I re, I was I read it as satire as I was reading it, right. and some of the stuff I found just hilarious. Right. Like, I don't, old I don't, people right. should kill the young, right. you know. Art the only the only um, good art is art that's related to war, and without war you can't have good art. Like all that stuff is ridiculous. So it, it's absolutely. it's a good read. Go get it. Yeah, and you know I don't know if it's gone to second or third editions. I hope so. Yeah. But if not, I'm sure the you know, the text may be available online or something yeah. like that. Just you know, give Lou and his due. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, don't don't take too much from him if you can't get it from the library. So. We have any announcements before we go, Joe? Well, send us an email out there, radio at gmail.com. Thanks to Sarah for her DDT comments. It's yeah. very impassioned. Thanks for following along with us tonight. And uh, if you're interested, if you're listening uh, live right now and you're interested in hearing some of our previous episodes, we've got about, I guess, 12 of them now, like I said earlier. Um, you can go and download or subscribe to our podcast at www.wog.org slash podcast. Um, if you... Um, you know, aren't tech savvy enough to get a podcast or to subscribe? It doesn't work right. Visit visit podcast.net and search out there W U O G, and you can actually click and download individual episodes. Or just send us an email out there radio at right. gmail.com. We'll point you in the right direction. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks a lot for listening. We got good stuff coming up in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, keep listening. Keep so, listening. Um, you got anything else, Joe? Oh, man. Peace. Peace. Good God, y'all. Peace, yeah. What is it good for? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.